Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, March 19th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So uh, yesterday, uh, there was this very peculiar meeting in Alaska uh, between Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken and Chinese diplomat Yang Jiechi that uh, involved the the first sort of face-to-face of senior officials of the two, you know, most important countries and most powerful countries in the world, you know, most, uh, you know, the two economic powerhouses of the planet, and... um, it began with the uh, with uh, with Yang um, just sort of assaulting the United States for 15 minutes. Uh, starting out uh, was someone else, uh, China State Councilor Wang Yi, who complained that uh, this meeting took place in the wake of uh, U.S. sanctions against Chinese officials because of uh you know in response to the uh crackdown uh or the sort of the the ending of uh democracy and free speech in hong kong and saying this isn't the way to start a good relationship at which point then his colleague um just uh yang just um just went to town assaulting the united states uh which has eerie parallels by the way to the negotiations uh, with the North Vietnamese uh, in Paris in uh, in the early seventies, um, where the North Vietnamese w- would uh, you know they were supposed to be having peace talks with the United States, and these would then just sort of devolve into criticism sessions in which the North Vietnamese would talk about uh, how we mistreated the Indians and stuff like that. Anyway, um, Noah, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I believe that the Chinese delegation arrived with the intention of causing a scene and making a, uh, a as much of a spectacle of themselves as possible. Nevertheless, <clears throat> it's conspicuous the extent to which the press and the diplomatic corps has ignored um, cer- certain uh, just courtesies, basic protocol that had the Trump administration been the executors of it, it would have amounted to hours of cable news coverage. The Chinese delegation arrived, first of all, um, and they were greeted by a red carpet that was comically small, hysterically small. Like it was, they, they rolled out, it was like a Warner Brothers cartoon, it rolled out about five and a half feet. And that sort of set the tone for what you could expect for the rest of the meeting. Nevertheless, um, Biden administration deserves some credit for a uh, standing on Hong Kong and the treatment of the Uyghurs and making that an issue in a public setting. And um, the Chinese delegation behaved as the Soviets did, as the North Vietnamese did, by echoing the sentiments of the far left uh, about how America mistreats its, its minorities, is responsible, use the term genocide um, for its treatment of black Americans, for example. And it's, you know, this is a rather common propagandistic uh, approach to diplomatic affairs with the United States. And it's, I, I agree with the, the Biden administration that's a sign of our strength. They said it's a sign of our strength that we're competent and capable enough to address our own fallacies and weaknesses. Um, but yeah, I mean, this was a diplomatic debacle. Um, and Tony Blinken and um, Jake uh, Sullivan uh, presided over an embarrassment to the United States in a very public setting. And uh, I think they came out the shorter for it, unfortunately. Um, I'm not sure how they could have navigated that 
situation better because the Chinese, in my view, arrived with the intention of blowing it up. Um, nevertheless, you see this frustration. With you, John, you passed along this piece from the New York Times yesterday about how the left is very frustrated with the Biden administration for for presiding over and executing what is essentially a a, a foreign policy that has a lot of continuity between the Trump administration, the Biden administration, the George W. Bush administration. Um, to a certain extent, politics does end at the water's edge, and we have preserved the kind of continu- continuous um uh, pressure that we've applied to rogue regimes and adversarial regimes like the Chinese, like the Iranians, like the Russians, the left wants to see us ease off and we're not. And that's a source of profound concern. And so I think you'll you know, on the part of the squad types, what have you, people who focus on foreign policy more than domestic on the left, you'll see a lot of continuity between what they say in public and what the Chinese delegation said yesterday. Yeah, I have to say, I'm going to push back a little bit on your assessment that they that the Biden administration folks did a good job responding to that. They actually could have been much stronger than just saying, look, we allow people to discuss these matters. They could have said, you know, because there is no equivalence between what China does to its minorities, which is put them in concentration camps and, and you know, w- make them work as prisoners, and what, what we're going through in terms of racial reckoning in this country. And I think for it would have, all they needed to do was say one beat on that. Say, you know what, these are not comparable situations. Here, you know, here are the ways in which our minority populations are, you know, encouraged to thrive, et cetera, et cetera. But they can't say that. Like, that's the part that struck me is that the woke, just like when the, you know, when the left left was in power in the United States and the far left were doing this in the 60s, they can't say anything because then they'll anger their own progressive base. And that's the point at which, you know, we talk a lot about the the deterioration of civic health that comes from these like 1619 project messages that they, that America is evil, but it's very useful to our enemies too. And even if it's mainly for domestic consumption in China to hear that you know, this propaganda on a public stage, I still think it's incumbent on anyone, regardless of whether there's a D or an R after their name, to, to push back harder on that when it's said in these sorts of settings. So I agree the foreign policy in general is, is it, it's great when you hear the progressives criticizing Biden for the same stuff that Trump did. Um, but I really would have liked to have heard a slightly stronger defense of this country and its values from, from those folks in Alaska. I have to say, <clears throat> I am uh, always feel uh, kind of energized and excited when the U.S. has public spats with um, regimes that are, in fact, our antagonists, um, as opposed to, you know, uh, what we've gotten used to uh, over the past however many administrations where uh, a new president comes in and sort of makes these um, preposterous overtures toward bad regimes who seek to do us harm and they paper over our differences and sort of try to start from a, uh, a, a, a false, fresh new beginning. Um, I, I, there's something, um, I think, um, this is an opening because, uh, we, we see just how overtly aggressive the Chinese now are being, uh, toward the U S. Um, it, we have many problems on that front, and it's never seems quite the time to deal with them because it is it is such an an enormous undertaking, and um, I think we're getting very close to if if we're not there to the point where it is time to do, to deal with this, and um, it's it's getting very hard to ignore. So I think there's an opportunity there. Well, there there is clearly, I mean, there are two ways I think of looking at this. One of which is that the Chinese have decided to take a new tack with a new administration. Um, which is to <clears throat> to jump out of the gate 
uh, as an aggressor and say, you're condescending, your country stinks, you have all this domestic trouble, you know, we're, you think you have the moral authority to tell us that we're doing bad things when you have Black Lives Matter problems in your own country. Um, this is an interesting tactic, right? It's not like, oh, hello, there's a new administration. Maybe there are things we can do together. And, you know, like it starts out nice and then gets gets ugly. They decided to go for the jugular from the get-go. And that's a, obviously a conscious and considered choice. The question is, why did they make that choice? And there are two possibilities, one of which is that they felt like they had spent four years with uh, an administration, the the Trump administration, that had sort of done this to them, right? Had sort of jumped out and gone after their throat, at least rhetorically, uh, you know, and and both from the at the beginning and at the end, um, and so they weren't going to take any guff. And they've been spending a year, you know, they they heard you know Wuhan and getting the flu, the flu blamed on them and all of that, and so they weren't gonna they weren't gonna take it anymore. And they were they were gonna that's one thing. And the other possibility is, of course, that they are sending a clear signal uh, that the United States is not to think of itself as the senior figure in this relationship. They are not going to act as though they are. We're a declining power. They're a rising power. And all that matters from here on in, how whatever is motivating them, is how we react to them. It's not a question of how they react to us. We are always in the United States and in the West worried about how our interlocutors are reacting to us and how we can build trust and how we can we can you know m- make them see reason or you know uh, come to the community of nations and 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 all of that and uh, the Chinese have made it uh, crystal clear from this one meeting uh, that they are uninterested in they consider such ideas and thoughts and approaches condescension and that they will not be condescended to in this fashion. And that leaves American diplomats with um, fewer arrows in their quiver because uh, this is this is their go-to. The go-to is, let's see if we can find areas of common agreement and then we can build trust and we can do this. And they're saying, we don't trust you and you suck and uh, we're not listening to you and uh, go blow. Well, this is not all that dissimilar from how the Soviets approached relations with the United States from, say, 1965 to 1969, right? And what ultimately exacerbating domestic racial tensions in the United States, exploiting them, highlighting them, making them central to their propagandistic efforts uh, internationally, and what diffused that detente, where we provided them with a much more important objective than the agitation in the West and a actual relaxation of tensions and the uh, commensurate material benefits that they would derive as a result of those relaxations. I mean, look, the, the negotiations with communist countries over the course of the last hundred years, to the extent that there have been negotiations, often involve, as I mentioned, the citation, the 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 the, uh, the recitation of American crimes against humanity. Um, uh, to in an effort to square the circle, because of course these are totalitarian countries that abuse and enslave their own populations, and then they want to say, "Oh yeah, who the hell are you? What about Native Americans? What about Black Lives Matter? Something like that." And the funny thing is, of course, that Blinken himself 
you know, right now, uh, this liberal administration doesn't have the best answer. I mean, he answered, he said kind of the thing that you're supposed to say, which is we're not perfect, but we've dealt with our challenges openly, right? Or something like that. And then uh, Yang said, you're, you're condescending to us. How dare you, right? So um, this, is a, this is a tried and true technique. Um, the, the weirdest thing is that the one person we really heard it from uh, in the last four years was Donald Trump. Right, who kind of made that Russian, that weird Russian case where it's like, oh, really? Oh, we're so great. You think we're not, mur- you're calling Putin a murderer? He said to Bill O'Reilly, we're so innocent. We haven't murdered people. You know, ordinarily, you don't do that to yourself, right? You don't say, oh, Putin's in the <laughs> right here. Um, he's right that we're terrible and we're just as bad as, as he is. Um, but I mean, it is a, it is an interesting, you know, it's an interesting problem for, for, for this um, attitude, which is that, uh, you know, Trump wouldn't negotiate. Now, we are bringing sweet reason back to the table. And, you know, China may not have any real reason to negotiate with us on, on, on these matters. Like, if you actually think about it, what are they negotiating over? Uh, w- what can we give them? Uh they well, want to take over Hong Kong. They want to. They want to do whatever they want to do with the Uyghurs. They want to dominate the South China Sea. They want to advance on Taiwan sovereignty. Um, you know, uh, all 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 we can do is say, you know, don't do all that, and then we'll be nice to you. And they're saying we don't want you to be nice to us. What do we need you for? As an instrument of soft power, human relations or human rights arguments are effective only insofar as they help you isolate the offending country from the international community. And that has to be a two-pronged effort. It's not just saying you're bad. It's also you're bad and everybody else shouldn't do business with you or everybody else should isolate you or everybody else should ring you or your country and your sphere of influence with militaries to keep you contained. In the absence of the second prong, the first prong is just whining. Well, and we see we saw an example of this. We, I mean, we saw this with Iran, right? There's a really interesting piece by a former hostage uh, who was in Iran, who went, who when he was, you know, a scholar, I think from Princeton, he wrote a piece. Uh, there's a piece about him in the Atlantic recently, where he says when he was in Iran, he was all for rapprochement. He thought, you know, what Obama wanted to do with the Iran deal was great. Then he's in prison, put in prison. And they basically mocked the idea that, you know, that this was anything other than something they would use against the United States as a power move, this idea that they could actually reach some sort of agreement about this. And he's changed his mind. And the great thing is he's come back. Um, you know, he was freed. He's back. And he won't stop talking about why he changed his mind. And it's kind of amazing to hear him, uh, you know, spell out in detail why he thinks any attempt to negotiate with Iran or make a deal with Iran again would be would make would repeat the same mistake. But that is another example where like an administration that's invested in an idea and an image of what American foreign policy should look like, you know, with this like hazy, nice, you know, progressive thing in contrast to terrible, mean, instrumental Republican foreign policy, for example, still gets it wrong. And they get it wrong in an often worse way because there's this overlay that the media encourages of, you know, we're really morally uh, superior. And we're doing this out of the kind of, not just out of a, a instrumental way to achieve American power and influence, but because we're better, we are literally better. And I think in that sense, the Chinese saying, you're not better, you're condescending was kind of, it, that was a shocking moment too, because they were saying out loud what usually gets buried in all this kind of diplomatic speak. You know, uh, it occurs to me when Noah's talking about soft power, we have a huge 
soft power crisis right now, I think, um, because um, we have, as, as John recounts, um, a, 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 a political right that um, has no problem rehearsing the, the, the manifold faults of our country, uh, in, including uh, the, the, the accusation that our uh, free and fair elections are, in fact, a hoax. Um, and we have a left that um, says that we are founded on uh, nothing but uh, racism and slavery and everything, all the, all the supposed fruits um, of, of our democracy are nothing but um, uh, expressions of, of, of that system. Um, uh, where is, what is the, what is the uh, uh, great cultural projection about uh, the United States that that where 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 does where does the source of our of our soft power at the moment? It's not it, it won't Biden saying America is back won't cut it. That, that look that's a very important point. We have this you know we have this sort of interesting moment uh, we've been talking about for a couple of years that people don't pay attention to that uh, China has attempted a kind of soft power outreach with this. Um, uh, I was going to say Silk Road, but it's not the Silk Road. It's um, Bel- Belton Road. Yeah, Belton Road. That you know they're going around building infrastructure uh, in in you know less developed countries as a form of um, maybe having some control over the infrastructure in these uh, countries that we don't really know about, and also like trying to create a, a reward structure for themselves where they're, they're, they're giving stuff, uh, you know, out of the goodness of their hearts and, and creating, uh, friendships, um, uh, to rival, to rival the United States. But like, this is ultimately the disaster that is posed by the reckless and repulsive, uh, you know, uh, gut check anti-Americanism that, that the, both the left and, and increasingly the right, defaults to in our sort of solipsistic self-obsession, which is, of course, we're better than China. China is an unfree country where if you speak your mind, you get thrown in prison. If you are the wrong, if you are, are the wrong religion or the wrong, uh, you know, uh, minority group, they will herd you into concentration camps where if you are you know, if you are a believer in you know Tibetan Buddhism, you're you will be you know uh, tormented and 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 persecuted. Um, and if you have the if you were a, a free person in Hong Kong uh, until you know a year ago, a relatively free person in Hong Kong, you are now an unfree person. Like that is not what we do. We we have civil rights guarantees. We have all of this, and and we act as though we're bad. And then we hand our enemies and rivals around the world the you know we the weapons and tools and rhetorical devices to attack us with by the very people who would not be able to attack the United States if the United States were the country that they say that the United States was, because they would all be in jail or lined up against a wall and shot. And they aren't. They get Pulitzers. They get MacArthur Genius Grants. They get to run the school system. They get to brainwash second graders about the evils of the United States. And we're doing this to ourselves. And we now see the consequences of it in our inability to have a frank dialogue 
with a totalitarian country that we nonetheless have to figure out ways to live with. And, you know, this is a huge problem. And Tony Blinken saying we're only good because we discuss our problems openly. That's not why we're good. We're good because we have a constitution. We're good because we have civil rights in the United States. We're good because we're not communists. We're Republicans and Democrats living in a democracy. But that's where that that's what's so bothersome. Like the fact that their immediate go to were platitudes, because the other thing was like Biden says never, you know, it's always wrong not to bet on America. I mean, it's just that the platitudes are, are not working this time. They used to work in a weird way because both sides played the game of platitudes. No platitudes. They don't work now. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so it'll be interesting because also I would say one other thing, which is that we we have been told, um, you know, that uh, this is a restoration of, you know, a, a more adult, a, a less, you know, a less kind of um, flaky foreign policy establishment that, you know, isn't this kind of jerry-rigged bunch of people, you know, uh, Rex, what, what what's his face? I can't remember his name. Rex First Secretary of State. Rex Tillerson. You know, followed by this one, followed by that one, the 17 defense secretaries, eight national security advisors, you know, people going here and there and, uh, you know, all of that. Now, here we have, we have grownups. It's grownups, sober, sober, judicious people. Anthony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, Tori Newland. These are, you know, these are like very serious you know, long-term professionals, they're calm, they're measured, they're, you know, they're not that ideological and they, yeah, da, 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 da. And this is the first major foreign policy moment of the Biden administration. Like they don't have any intelligence to say, you know, they're going to come and try to sandbag you. So let's prepare what we're going to say when they do this. Like ordinarily you might have some advanced word or advanced leanings, right? Not necessarily, uh, not necessarily. They violated protocol. And that was what the you know, what made the American response seem so facile, is that they they said you're extending your opening remarks beyond that which was already agreed to, which is an egregious offense in diplomatic parlance, but it's kind of falls flat for just about everybody in the real world, particularly anybody who lived through the Trump administration, because they had very little regard for uh, diplomatic niceties and the like, and um, perhaps that is the new normal. I mean, again, another thing that the, the the foreign policy establishment on the left is frustrated with Joe Biden for was apparently outreach to Jared Kushner, who Mirabile Dictu managed to effectuate one of the most amazing foreign policy coups <laughs> of the last of this century. And uh, yeah, he should be advising this administration on uh, on affairs of, of state in part because of outside the box thinking, the sclerotic thinking that. Um, is uh, rewarded in the foreign policy establishment is something that absolutely needs to be challenged. But I'm just saying, if you're Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, and you had just had that session, and you, you're done, and you go back, uh, you know, to your wh- wherever it was, you get back on the plane, or you, I, I guess they're still there, right? They're going to have a couple more days of talks. I don't know if Blinken's staying. I don't know who's staying there. You go back, and do you say, what the hell was that? Or do you say, really, that was just, that, that was not right, what they did there. It was just terrible uh, that they, uh, you know, they uh, violated protocol. What they or should say is, what how is do it we about? Get this, how, yeah. how do we get this? 
How do we let this happen to us? Well, they should throw out whatever playbook they're working with and rethink it. Is right. what, that that should be what they go back yeah. with after that meeting? Yeah, and you know the point is like, don't be a wuss. Like these guys came at you throwing punches. So I mean, I understand that that's not the approach that we want to take, but they're not going to respect anything else. Like if you actually have action items and objects that you want to deal with with the Chinese to get going here over the next four years, um, they have already clear that they're not going to, this is not the turf that they're going to play on. So yeah, you better, you better, you know, change your game plan because, you know, I don't even know if they lost or won. I mean, what is it? There wasn't anything to win or lose. They were just having an opening salvo you know an opening press conference or whatever the hell it was that was going on or the press was present and they and they and they got you know they got their hats handed to them but i mean it doesn't need to mean anything unless it is suggestive of how they are going to behave over the next four years and well, the- and also the, the other thing that was the other subtext everyone should always remember in the context of China is how much of our debt they hold right now. Right. We're about we're going into this like massive spending era as a response to the pandemic. And the, I don't even think does, isn't it, isn't it correct? The Chinese won't even disclose how much of our debt they actually own. But like it's a lot. I think they're one of the top holders of, of our foreign debt. So they're, they have they actually do have leverage over us that we know about. There's all this technology stuff with 5G and whether or not we're going to be making uh, agreements with them about that. I mean, there's there are many, many issues in which the Chinese probably correctly feel they're at already at an advantage. And the internal uh, weakness and the kind of civic unrest that's been going on in this country is one way for them to, to you know, sort of draw attention to our supposed weakness. But there's real structural issues that we're going to have to deal with with China in during this administration. And I, like I said, I hope they go back and rethink how they're going to approach those. Well, I mean, they do own our debt. Uh, we, we control their economy, however, in a different way, which is that we are the market that they, they, they are the manufacturing arm of the U S market and their entire export economy is based on our consumption of the goods they make for us and so, you know, uh, in a weird way, two can play at that game. I mean, I, you know, uh, it, it, it would mean a lot of a pain and hardship for American consumers. Um, but if, if you're actually talking about real economic conflict, uh, you know, we have resources to punish them. And they are, they are, of course, you know, on the one hand, they're much stronger than we are in a funny way because they are, they have this, you know, uh, they, they have cracked down on their populations uh, and, uh, and you know, deliberalized and done everything to deliberalize uh, instead of following the path that people were hoping that they were going to follow, which is that economic liberalization would precede political liberalization. Um, so in, in some sense, they can do whatever they want at will. And, and in another sense, uh, uh, reversals, deep economic reversals, uh, will have very catastrophic consequences for them. They have a, they have an old age crisis. They have a pensioners crisis. They have a healthcare crisis. They have a wildly aging population. Um, and you know, uh, they 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 depend on these stratospheric rates of economic growth that can be that don't necessarily have to continue forever. So, uh. 
one of the places that you might you are going to find some real insight and 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 thought about what all this is going to mean for the U.S. economy and for uh, markets and investing is the Bonson Group, uh, today's first sponsor, uh, the producer of the two great uh, internet newsletters, the DCToday.com and DividendCafe.com. DCToday.com being a daily product and DividendCafe.com being a weekly product uh, produced by David Bonson, the uh, head of this uh, bi-coastal financial management firm with $2.5 billion under management. Uh, David is uh, non-pare in in his ability to, uh, to deal with the interplay of politics, policy, markets, um, macroeconomics, and the uh, and the ways in which government policy, both here and abroad, have an impact on the decisions that we all need to make when it comes to how we should handle and manage our money, and uh, makes a very good case for people who have the resources and assets to take advantage of the Bonson Group's uh, financial tools, instruments, and um, and analysis. Uh, to go with them to do that. So uh, the dividend cafe, dividend, excuse me, dividendcafe.com, the dctoday.com, uh, those are what you can benefit from from the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti that is the financial services and financial advice industry. And we thank them for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Um, so, uh, once again, we find ourselves uh, in a in a in a world in which Joe Biden c- gets up to give a speech, talking about how great everything is going, and ends the speech talking about how horrible everything is. And I continue not entirely to understand what the what the impulse is. So the over over uh, under promising and over delivering aspect of the Biden presidency it came entirely clear yesterday when he showed up and said, "Hey, guess what." We are going to meet our 100 million shots in 100 days in 58 days. Today is the day that we will put the 100 million shot in an arm. Isn't that amazing? We're just, you know, they never, they said it couldn't be done. Even though I remember saying it could be done on January 15th. So uh, they, they said it couldn't be done. And now it's been done. And the people are marveling. And by the way, I, I should say it is a fantastic thing that's happened here. Uh, the rollout, the vaccine, what's what's going on, and the fact that 39%, I believe, of people over 65 who are, of course, the most vulnerable to the virus have now been fully vaccinated or something like that is a, is a stunning achievement in a country of 330 million people. And, of course, is important because of the false force multiplier effect here, which is as it is more as it is more dangerous to people, the older you get, the more old people who get vaccinated uh you know it's less and less important as you get younger the the vaccine spread and all of that is mitigated by the fact that you are getting people vaccinated who are not going to get sick um so uh it's 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 twice as good as it seems because it's not like everybody needs it uh in the same way but that is not the meta message that you are getting from biden or anybody else because the meta message is, uh, we're nowhere near out of the woods yet. Oh my God! Here come the variants. The variants are coming, and you got to keep, you know, got to keep socially distanced. You got to wash your hands. Although, again, I'm not sure. I remain unsure what the washing your hands thing 
is about. I mean, I'm all for washing your hands when you come in from because outside. if you sneeze or cough into your hand, you can then transmit what you, okay, you, you fair theoretically enough. can transmit that to. Okay, yeah. okay. So wash your hands, wear a mask, keep socially distanced. And as Biden said in the most amazing statement yesterday, July 4th, our Independence Day, quote, we can begin to declare our independence from the virus. On July 4th, we can begin to declare our independence from the virus. That's 108 days from now that we can begin. 108 days from now. We can't say right now that we're beginning to declare independence from the virus because that would be letting our guard up too easily. And Noah, you have a you have you have a uh, a uh, medical doctor, say t- TV sage guy to complain about. I sure do. <clears throat> yeah, um, I determined that the only satisfying explanation for any of this at this point is that they're just trying to drive us crazy. Um, it's. And, and it's kind of working, especially if you allow it. On CNN yesterday, Dr. Sanjay Gupta um, was defending Anthony Fauci, who got into a bit of a spat with uh, Senator Rand Paul during a uh, hearing yesterday where Rand Paul confronted him and said, look, you got, you, you've been vaccinated, double vaccinated for a long time now. You're coming in here with two masks. Isn't this a bunch of theater? And then Dr. Fauci goes back. He's like, oh, enough with the, with the theater stuff. Listen, there are the variants. The variants are coming. There's a lot of variants out there. And you never know about the variants. And Sanjay Gupta was attempting to defend his remarks, which I'm being flippant about. But nevertheless, I didn't find them especially compelling. So let me be flip. So Sanjay Gupta says um, about masking. And nobody really has a problem with masking. The masking is a, is a canard. Um, he says, quote, the virus learns how to sort of adapt and mutate now to a vaccinated person. So exposing vaccinated people to the virus, you could start to inspire more and more mutations. So should you even bother to get vaccinated? Because you're just going to get more wily, clever mutations out there. The, and this drives me nuts. And I, you don't have to be an epidemiologist to understand that this makes no sense. That we have studies now empirically and clinically um, from places like Israel, where 80% of the of the circulation of this virus is the um, UK variant, this B1 whatever. And they found that the Pfizer vaccine, which is the primary thing they studied, they also studied Moderna, but primarily the Pfizer vaccine is 94% effective at stopping asymptomatic transmission of this disease, meaning you don't even know you have it, but you're giving it to other people. Transmission is how you get a virus that mutates. It doesn't just mutate in the air. It has to get into you and replicate and then try to get around your immune system. So being immunized prevents the transmission, prevents the mutations. What are they talking about? Why are they trying to drive us crazy? And one of the compelling things that Rand Paul said yesterday to to Fauci was that if you're worried about the fact that there are people out there who won't get vaccinated, Stop telling them that the vaccination won't won't change their lives. It will. I mean, it, it makes for a very boring programming day to say the same thing over and over and over and over again. But if the primary 
problem that we're facing right now is unvaccinated populations that are hesitant towards and resistant towards messaging about this vaccine, then you have to say that over and over and over again. And everybody has to say it. And you can't give them some sort of an out where you're just asking questions about this sort of thing. Republicans do this too. And it drives me absolutely nuts. Yesterday, the Transportation Security Administration screened over 1.4 million people in airports. It's the highest number of travelers we've had in this country since March 15th of 2020 the eve of the pandemic. People are getting back to normal. They're not listening to this bullshit anymore. And they have to start getting honest with the American public or nobody's going to listen to these people anymore. But if, but then if they're not listening to them, why, why are you so, why, why, why are you driven so crazy? You're saying- Because I'm listening to them. Okay, you I have enough. to listen to them. I have a professional well, they're still demanding to listen to them. to them. And they actually, and, and it's worse because they still have an impact on public policymaking with regard to things like businesses reopening, schools reopening. So it's not just that, you know, we- the public in general, if it doesn't affect your life, can ignore them and go about their business and get on an airplane. But for people who want their kids back in school or for businesses that want to reopen at full capacity, they're still listening to this. The CDC guidance has literally become tea leaf reading among people who care about school reopenings. It's ridiculous. Right. And and they are, I agree with Noah, they are squandering their their credibility when they keep messaging this this extreme message that doesn't comport with the reality of what's happening with vaccination. Okay, so listen to this. This is the New York Times story called U.S. Rushes to Expand COVID Vaccine Eligibility in a Race Against Time, okay? Uh, cases, deaths, and hospitalizations have all fallen sharply from January peaks, yet infection levels have plateaued this month at about 55,000 new cases a day. So now we are now we are revising, uh, you know, we are defining, I don't know, danger upward so that caseloads have crashed, but they've now hit a level at 55,000 a day. So that's, that's, that's dangerous because they're not just falling forever, right? So rather than taking the win that there was a caseload that was going up and now it's going down, we are to look at the plateau as though it is an increase, okay? That's number one, according to this logic. Uh, Dr. Stephen J. Thomas, SUNY Upstate Medical University's Chief of Infectious Disease. I think it is a race against time, he says. Every single person that we can get vaccinated or every single person that we can get a mask on is one less opportunity that a variant has. Okay, now, first of all, every single person that we can get vaccinated is one less opportunity that a variant has, right? That's absolutely true. And that is the that is the answer to Sanjay Gupta's insane statement that vaccination will still hit you know, people will still get variants, right? But putting a mask on somebody is not necessarily one less opportunity that a variant has. It may, but it also may not. And if you are if you are actually trying to tell people that masking is the same as vaccinating, that is a terrible message. Because it's like, it's I don't need message. to go wait online to get a vaccine. I'll just wear a mask or the hell with all of it. It's a bad message, but it's not the it's not the world's biggest problem. The problem here is that anybody who crafts public policy knows that it has to be accompanied with inducements, with incentives, with carrots. And unmasking is probably the last carrot you're going to be able to offer. But there are a whole bunch in in between, like being able to travel, like being able to gather in large groups inside, not outside, like being able to resume uh, going to restaurants at full capacity or going to concerts or half a dozen other things that characterize modern life before. You can get masking last. 
fine. But you have to be able to offer people who get vaccinated an opportunity to go back to their real life because otherwise they don't have any inducement to do so. Well, and it also help people don't have to think about that. But politicians should. There's a lot also, I think, that the public health messengers, even when they're trying to do their job, honestly, forget, which is that the public talking about it the way they do there, the public often hears, oh, so we're not safe till there's no more virus circulating, right? Because there's variants, there's this, there's that. This virus will be with us for a very long time, just like all kinds of coronaviruses and flu viruses are all constantly in circulation in the public. But we've gotten, because of the scale of this crisis, we've gotten to this weird, it's got to be at zero to be safe. And that's why the, the, that's the default now. That's the default for reopening businesses and schools and doing, getting back to normal life. And that actually, that part of the message I hear from friends all over the country who are like, well, what about the variants? We really have to, there can't be new cases. The plat- Plateau, interestingly, John, that I'm hearing from people who were otherwise excited about opening up. They're like, oh, but now the cases are plateauing. I'm like, there's always going to be cases. It's just, it's just that's how viruses work. It's but also that message not isn't every getting out. case of Corona is the same as every yes. other case of Corona. Many people get it and don't get sick from it. The point is that we we have prioritized vaccinations over the past two and a half months for the people who are most likely to get sick from it. Therefore, it is going to have an outsized effect on the nature of the disease's effect. Are there going to be people who get it and are you know made very sick by it? Yes. Are they going to get long COVID? Yes. Is that the thing that we must guard against by keeping the economy half shut down or travel or people can't socialize or anything like that? No. Right, it's a matter of priorities. It, it's we not attempting to prevent this. mass deaths. We are not attempting to prevent right. mass sickness. Like well, that in, is in, not in a, the goal. Extent, that has never been the goal. To play my own devil's advocate, Sanjay Gupta is not wrong. It's it's not impossible. Ninety four percent isn't one hundred percent. It's not impossible for vaccinated people to get this disease. It's not impossible for it to replicate in your system once you're vaccinated. And it's not impossible for there to be some sort of mutation. It's just that it's an infinitesimal problem. It's the scale of your priorities here that the priority should be get vaccinated. And vaccination has all these incentives and worry about the the prospect of vaccinated people incubating weird mutations later because it's not impossible. It's just not the priority at the moment. But so Abe, let's, the go back to, let's go back to the Greenwald okay. theory. Can we go well, back to the Greenwald theory? Sure. The Greenwald theory is the virus does what it does. Um, and every, every spot, every geographical location gets its spike and its dip and uh, doesn't, have much to do with uh, what, what we, how we respond. Um, the sort of the curve kind of bends on its own, uh, just as a, a function of of sort of you know people getting infected uh, and it, it, you know waves of transmission and then subsiding. Um, but my thought is that they don't have long to go with this message, right? I mean, we're at one hundred and sixteen. Uh, million shots administered now. Um, how much longer are they going to be able to say where where, where this is a critical time where we where the cases could rise, cases are are, are plateauing? Um, the 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 writing is sort of uh, n- not quite yet on the wall, but 
it's 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 about to be right. I mean, uh, either, either the vaccines are ninety four percent effective or they're not, um, and if they are, whatever they say is not going to matter very very soon. Well, I mean, uh, facts on the ground can change. So there's a plateau. So let's say there's a plateau for two weeks, and then case numbers start to crash again, which is the likeliest outcome from the vaccination campaign is that, you know, as as the number, as we start getting into the 30s or 40% of Americans being vaccinated, there simply will not be, I don't care, I, I, I'm i not now going to get into the, ooh, you could get it without knowing it, it's in your system, and hey, you extrude it to other people and all that. I mean, you're just not going to get the, the point about the Greenwald theory is that is that the virus is opportunistic and it sort of goes places where it wasn't before and it finds people who... Uh, who have no wherewithal against it, and it attacks them, and it makes them sick or it kills them, right? That's that's what happens. Well, if they get vaccinated, by the time it gets there, the, the virus bounces off them harmlessly and goes away. And therefore, this is not an endless cycle. Well, and they should see some of the plateauing of... of uh... Uh, case dropping as at this point, that should the first impulse should be to see that as a problem with the vaccination strategy. Look, I'm still waiting to get a vaccine. I pre-read, I did everything I'm supposed to. I can't get it here in DC. I cannot get the vaccine yet. I would love, I would do it, you know, tomorrow or today if I could get an appointment. So I think in some places you've got a lot of bad uh, distribution and, and vaccination policies still kind of working their kinks out. And hopefully the supply problem will soon be solved because we know that production has increased. So even if we see a plateau, our go-to should no longer be, oh my God, we're all going to die. It should be, what's not working in our vaccination strategy? Why aren't people, you know, the people who need to be signing up? Why aren't we getting shots in arms? That The practical matter um, of vaccination vaccination now should be the focus from here uh, so that by July 4th, it's not like we're beginning to emerge from our, you know, our den or whatever and have our independence. They will already be there. And we should know, be there. There's also some, uh, to go back to Israel, some encouraging uh, news from there is that uh, cases first nosedived uh, when they started distributing the vaccine. And then there was a bit of a plateau there as well, two, three weeks, something like that. And then they nosedived again. Um, there's every reason to think that that is that is what will happen here, uh, guys. Um, as we as we come to the end of the week and we are approaching fast approaching the beginning of Passover uh, next weekend, uh, I want to remind you that this is your opportunity to go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever, and get yourself the telling how Judaism's essential book reveals the meaning of life by Mark Gerson so that everybody who celebrates or observes Passover can get wonderful new information, facts, discussion points to discuss at your Seder, which is, of course, the point of the Seder, which is to have conversations about uh, the Exodus, the history of the Jewish people, why the Jewish people have survived the way they have survived, what it is about uh, our ethical, moral, religious codes, and and uh, and our relationship to God that has, has uh, created this miraculous uh, multi-millennia existence for a people that uh, were were largely homeless for most of of human history um, uh, very rich uh, very important um, and uh, a really you know if you've been I I will be attending my I don't know 50 my sick my 59th Seder uh, this year 58th Seder this year 
And, you know, things sometimes you, you, you need to keep things fresh because you need to do what, what, uh, it says in the Haggadah, which is you shall tell your son in that day saying it is because of that, which the Lord did for me, uh, when I came forth from Egypt and the more you tell the story, the more praiseworthy you are. And so this is a way of telling and retelling and retelling the story. That's Mark Gerson's book, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life, G-E-R-S-O-N, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, download the audiobook, do ever what you have to do to get this book, and refresh your Passover Seder, and refresh your mind, and refresh your uh, reverence for this um, amazing annual uh, celebration of the, uh, of, of the longevity of the Jewish people. Um, so I will say this about Biden saying, uh, we will begin to uh, celebrate our independence, which is, uh, we just need to, maybe we should just think this is just another version of the, uh, under promising and over delivering thing that he's going to say, you know, I said you couldn't uh, see anybody, uh, you know, without being in a body suit, you know, like the boy in the plastic bubble until October, 2027. But you know what? May 1st. Memorial Day, you could have these things, or you know, Arbor Day, or April Fool's Day. I'm not April; that's too close. Um, but um, maybe that's what's going on: is that they know perfectly well they're now they're now we're ba- basically now on track to getting seventy percent of people vaccinated by I think the beginning of July. I mean, if we get if we're doing two and a half million shots a day. Uh, from from you know uh, that means you're going to you're going to have, you're going to get close to herd immunity by the beginning of the summer. And at some point, yeah, the caseloads will crash and all of that. And, and, and they won't be able to, but they won't want to. That's my, this is my devil's advocate point. They won't want to anymore because they're going to want to claim success. Remember in 2020, I said at some point, the democratic politicians are going to deem the virus beaten. Now, that happened way later than I thought it would. Um, but at some point, Bi- Biden is going to deem the virus beaten. There's got There's a tipping point, though. There's got to be some point at which, uh, you know, Dr. Doom uh, stops saying, you know, everybody needs to have a mask sewn into their skin. Uh, and uh, by maybe, the way, I have everybody... my 17th interview today on CBSN, the cable network with three people watching. Yeah, uh, uh, maybe. Uh, I mean, it's just it's for people who don't subordinate their common sense to their partisan um, objectives. It's just kind of obnoxious to see them take credit for events that are happening. I mean, if you can set your watch by it, people will be traveling in, in numbers equivalent to what they were before the pandemic. People will be gathering in large numbers. And then the Biden administration will retroactively deem that okay and take credit for it because that's what they've done ever since they came into office. And it's just kind of frustrating. I joked on the on our text thread that, you know, the Soviets just should have lowered their production quotas. And then their fellow travelers in the West would have, you know, said every five year plan was a smashing success. We did it in three. We did it in three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but, but how, here's my one question. Cause we were speculating that the message would become much more optimistic after the relief bill got passed. And actually I think the weird ambivalence of Biden's messaging since then suggests that that might not have been totally accurate. So my question is they have some stakeholders in the democratic party that really have an investment in not, not moving the needle on the messaging. How will they buy off those folks. They've already been throwing money at the problem. That's not working. Like, how are they going to get there with those groups? I don't know, because the interesting thing is, you know, I made a joke here about Dr. Doom and the masks and all of that. 
But so much is invested in Fauci, and apparently Biden is on the phone with Fauci all the time, that he needs, uh, we're, we're in a position where there's this, you know, one octogenarian who is having the time of his goddamn life uh, being America's doctor, being Dr. Kildare or, you know, Marcus Welby, MD, uh, reborn or something. And he's got to say to Biden, we've beaten this thing. Or he's going to come out and Biden's going to say, this is all great. Everything's going great. We're going to do this. And then you'll have, I don't yeah, you know, it's very important to keep that mask on until 2027. You know, but this is a version of what happened with the CDC director. She said about schools like, yeah, let's start, you know, it's safe for teachers to be back. And that had to be yanked back immediately by the right. administration. Right. So right. you're right. Now but she's she kind of the has no, but up. Rochelle Walensky has no independent standing and Biden and, and Fauci, Fauci does, is yes. now a transcendent yeah. figure and they can't do what we're talking about. Well, Fauci did that. He did that with large with mass gatherings. Joe Biden said, you know, it's or Ron Klain said, you know, this is what we're working toward, which is like small gatherings with your immediate family on July 4th only. And he's like, this is our big. No objective. hugging, then, no hugging. And then and then Fauci goes, ah, well, maybe it'll be bigger. Like he goes off the reservation all the time. But he can. That's my point. He can go off the reservation. But you know how we've we've talked about. He is the <clears throat> reservation. So he can go off the reservation because I'm saying he's the reservation. You know how we've talked about the crash and burn of the anti-Trumps? Um, Fauci is a, a different kind of anti-Trump, right? Um, uh, you know, he's not like Trump. He's He didn't sort of bring the fight to him, but he was uh, absolutely worshipped as the, the voice of reason to counter uh, what was coming out of the, the White House. Um, I don't think he'll crash and burn. I think there is some reason to think that that stranglehold on the American consciousness, um, maybe loosening. Uh, you know what I mean? I don't. I don't know that Fauci is worshipped quite the way he was uh, when when Trump was in office. Just, just the 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 nature of the sort of challenges to his um, lockdown wisdom. Um, but seems Biden, seems to question, be shaking but, something up. Yeah, but Biden may be there. I'm not talking about whether or not the public needs Fauci to say everything's fine. Biden may need Fauci to say it. Because he has now turned Fauci into the voice of the virus or the vaccine or, right. or, 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 or the cure or something like that. And he will not feel confident in deeming the virus beaten until he has this independent, you know, uh, you know this, uh, the, the Oracle of Delphi oracling that, uh, that uh, we, have, uh, we have defeated the variants or we have whatever. And then when that happens... Sanjay Gupta can't say his nonsense because oh he will be he he no, that's not what Fauci said I mean I just, you know I don't know um so that's uh that's very important that uh, you know he's disagreeing with Fauci um so I'm saying that this may be a personnel issue uh, in the Biden administration and you know when running a business personnel is a real issue HR issues can kill you wrongful termination suits minimum wage requirements. Labor regulations and those HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of 70000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance, all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager 
is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel any time. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time in HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary, spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. What is anybody doing this weekend? Don't all jump in at once. I'm doing some Aikido. <laughs> okay, Aikido. Our, our, our resident <laughs> black belt is doing some Aikido. Uh, Abe. Plans with friends. Plans with friends. I don't care what Fauci says. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, Noah. Packing. Packing for his vacation. Yes, Noah will not. That's right. Yeah, we, by the way, are not sure yet. I'll be one of those screened passengers. <laughs> Take that, yeah, <laughs> Doctor Doom. <laughs> we will be. We're we're still working out how we're gonna do the uh, podcast in his absence. Uh, I will be in Chicago for for Passover. Uh, so uh, we'll see how how all that goes. And yes, I am driving. I'm not flying. I'm driving. I will tell you one thing, and then we can go. I drove to Chicago last summer. First time I went to college in Chicago and I drove from New York to Chicago during college three or four times. And this was the late 79, 80, 81. And the speed limit was 55. And it took me 18 hours to drive from New York to Chicago. So I hadn't done it in a year. I hadn't done it. And I said, you know what? It's going to be a little better because the speed limit is higher. took... 13 hours, five hours. And that was with, you know, stops to eat, stuff like that. Um, we ate in the car, but nonetheless, 13, five hour difference. That 55 mile an hour speed limit was one of the worst things ever. One of the, and that was talk about one of those moments where you really saw the difference between sort of Democrats and Republicans and nanny staters and, free people or something like that like everybody who believed you know everybody who believed that the purpose of the federal government is to you know put you in a keep you safe and cosset you and make sure you're safe and all of that loved the 55 mile an hour speed limit and everybody else who thought that the central point about living in america was to be a free person hated the 55 mile an hour speed limit and it was destroyed basically because people couldn't take it anymore because it was started as a as a way of saving gas during the oil embargo. And then it became a thing. It sort of mutated into something else. Oh, it was so great. It stopped It stopped debt. It was so good. It was so wonderful. Um, and then it just basically state by state by state, like people figured out a way to, you know, penetrate it. And then they changed. You, the, you have to give credit to Sammy Hagar for his, hmm. I can't try 55 song playing its cultural role go. in like eliminating it. Anyway, that, that and the and the arrival of Easy Pass or whatever the transponder system you might have to go through tolls without having to stop at the toll booth have transformed the experience of long range driving like nothing else. I mean, I remember driving to Washington D.C. and every there were five tolls and like every time there was a fifteen minute line at the two. Four of them are in, in Delaware. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Delaware, and then there were two in Maryland, and you would sort of wait in these lines, and now you just sail. And I. 
it's weird. It's been like 15 years since Easy Pass came on. And every time I go through one of those things, I'm like, this is just so great. I don't know. I, you know, I love science. So, well, uh, it's been, it's been like, uh, this is not really related, but it just reminded me of it. It's been like 20 years since, um, as consumers, as customers in stores, we are sort of responsible for inserting our, our credit cards into the little machine. But I still, every now and then, I find myself handing my card over to the uh, salesperson to to, yeah. to swipe. And they're, inevitably, they're like younger. And they, they don't even remember a time when 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 we shoppers didn't have the wherewithal to, to be able to yeah. swipe our own cards. Yeah. So my daughter and I were having, my 14-year-old daughter and I were having a conversation yesterday about something. And I was like, oh, we were talking about when, when did they start frying food? Like when, when fried food is so good, when did they start frying food? And I was like, you know what? I don't actually know the answer to that question. So, you know, took my phone out and sort of typed in when did frying food begin? It turns out, by the way, there were funnel cakes in Italy in the 13th century, just to, just to let you know. Before falafel, apparently. Funnel cakes preceded falafel. Anyway, um, so she looked at me and she said, God, imagine a time before Wikipedia, she said. And I said, imagine a time before Wikipedia. I was like 45 before there was a Wikipedia. Anyway, imagine a time And with that, I will wish you a good weekend while you can reflect on the time that came before wikipedia for noah christine and abe i'm john podhortz keep the candle burning